Hey there, welcome to the What Connects Us podcast, where we explore human connection with people from Saskatchewan. Today we're chatting with Alex Clark about becoming the WHL's first female official and the journey that took her to the 2022 Olympic Winter Games. Let's drop the puck and get into it. All right, it's the sixth and final episode of season six of the What Connects Us podcast, and we have such a good episode to close the season out on. My name is Mason Gardner, and before we jump into today's conversation, I just want to take a quick second to look back at where we've been so far this season. We have ventured to places we have never been before, both figuratively as we've chatted about topics we've never talked about before on the first five seasons of this podcast, including a nervous breakdown, homophobia, vision loss, immigration, changing career trajectories, and today about breaking through genderized industries. We've also traveled to new places across the province to hear stories from people from Maidstone, Indian Head, Fairlight, Griffin, and even Taiwan. I know that's not in the province, but it was a great story. So before we end off season six and introduce our last guest, I want to thank Kayla, Brock, Ashley, Andy, and Christian for not holding back in order to normalize some tough topics and allow us to learn from their experiences. We've heard so many stories from people who have taken some great lessons from these stories, and it would not have been possible without your transparency. So thank you so much. We're not done yet, though, because today's episode features someone who has recently made history in an Olympic way. Alex Clark is joining us to tell us all about how the end of her career as a hockey player didn't end with her hanging up her skates. In fact, it was just the beginning. Alex became a hockey official in 2015, and after years of hard work and sacrifice, she became the first female lines person in the Western Hockey League. She didn't stop there, though, because a few months later, Alex didn't just break borders. She traveled across them as she was selected to officiate at the 2022 Winter Olympic Games in Beijing. All of this sounds pretty incredible, right? Well, it is, but Alex is going to share both the highs and the lows of the journey that includes the tough skin she's had to develop as a female ref in a highly genderized industry, the immense sacrifices that comes with becoming an official at the highest level, what it's like to be thrown into the spotlight as a trailblazer, and how COVID-19 put a damper on her Olympic dream. Alex is joining us from her home in Griffin, and I'm so excited for you to hear the story because she truly holds nothing back. So let's start the conversation. What connects us to Alex? Let's find out. Alex Clark, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. So you're from Weyburn. So this is going to be the most important question that I ask you today. How many times a week do you eat at the all-you-can-eat KFC buffet? Zero, but Welsh <laughs> Kitchen, more times than I'd like to admit. <laughs> What's the, what'd you call it? Wells Kitchen? Welsh Kitchen and Bakery. Oh, okay. So what's that? Tell me about, sell me on that. So it's like a soup and sandwich spot locally owned. They make all their own breads, all the soups, everything. It's just like you go and you get a hearty, healthy meal and yeah. you don't, you don't pay your whole life for it. <laughs> and you leave actually feeling like you ate a good meal. It's the best. And dessert for a dollar if you get the combo. Oh, wow. So you're saying <laughs> that uh, KFC buffet is not a hearty and healthy meal. I would, I would argue that it's hearty and healthy. (laughs) (laughs) You have some people from Weyburn that is going to shut off this, this podcast immediately. (laughs) They're so offended. Oh, that's awesome. So let's just jump in with a quick introduction. I mentioned that you're from Weyburn, uh, but 
tell me a little bit more about yourself. Answer the question, who is Alex Clark? Give me some background on who you are so we can better understand your story. So I am married to a farmer. My husband and I farm just outside of Weyburn. So we actually live just outside a little community called Griffin now. Um, We have a a three-year-old daughter named Prairie. I work full-time as a relationship manager at Farm Credit Canada. And I do pretty much everything I can that is active and outdoors. And then in, in the winter months, I referee ice hockey. So Tell me a little bit about what life was like growing up for you and kind of how that played into your story. Yeah, so I grew up on a farm just outside of Drake, Saskatchewan, a really small village um, kind of in central Saskatchewan. And my parents both worked full-time on the farm growing up. I had four siblings and we had a mixed grain and cattle operation. So I would say that that tells a lot about my story of growing up with a lot of siblings, um, a busy life, and we were really taught to work hard, which I think really played played into how I was raised and how I grew up and how I show up in my life as an adult now. Awesome. I'm from a small town too, Lemberg, about 350 people. Yeah. So tell me about hockey. And this is going to be a big part of our conversation here, but it does, I find that hockey, the roots Uh, run a little deep in in um, rural background so how did hockey become such a key part of your life yeah so I don't even know how old I was when I started playing hockey probably five or six Um, and in small towns there's not as many options for sport for young kids and it essentially takes every kid in your age group to be able to make up teams um, plus surrounding communities so I grew up playing hockey I I loved it I had to play with the boys because there was no no female team but it, right. it it wasn't a big deal to me it it was just playing with my friends there was only a couple of girls my age and lots of boys so I did everything with the guys and to me I grew up playing hockey it was one of the sports I got to get off the farm for in the winter and I got to go play with my friends and compete and have fun not on the farm Totally. Yeah. So give me a glimpse and a further deep dive into what your hockey career looked like. Yeah. So when we, we started playing female hockey, there was one other girl in Drake that played as well at that time. So we would carpool together. Our parents would take turns driving us <laughs> because neither of us had our license. Right. And we would commute to Humboldt, Saskatchewan. Um, and we played on a team there for one year. And then that team actually folded. And so for our grade nine year, we drove to Saskatoon to play. Um, It wasn't really sustainable for our parents to keep driving us those distances. It was over an hour one way, Mm. um, multiple times a week, and we both had siblings. So when I was in grade 10, I actually moved away from home and came to Weyburn and played female AAA hockey here for three years. Um, And then when I graduated here, I actually went down to Duluth, Minnesota, and played Division Three hockey there for, for my four years of college career. What was that like? What was Duluth like compared? And I think Minnesota is actually quite comparable to Saskatchewan, but what was that like? It was it was my first time really being out of the country even was when I moved away for university. Right. And so just the changes I had to make culturally and adjusting to interacting with mainly people who are from an urban setting. Yeah. Um, a lot of people that went to school at my school came from the Twin Cities, okay. which is is very disconnected from where I grew up. So mm-hmm. it was a complete adjustment um, living in a different country and then dealing with people that I'd never dealt with before. 
but it was such an incredible place to go to school and the city was so beautiful and so welcoming that I would, I would go back in a heartbeat. Awesome. We just had Brock Weston on the podcast and he was talking about when he went and played NCAA hockey up in um, Fond du Lac, Wisconsin. Like he was hit with a number of different culture shocks what, with the difference between Canada and, and um, the US. One being when you um, pay at a restaurant, like they take your credit card and you write down the tip, kind of old school like that. What were some culture culture shock moments for you where you're like, ooh, this is I'm not in Canada anymore? A big one was price of things, really. Like the cost of living was at that time substantially lower yeah. and the Canadian dollar was good. So it, it felt reasonable to live. Right. Um, and going there as a college student, that was pretty big for me. But honestly, I didn't I didn't get hit with a lot of culture shocks because I didn't leave my bubble of hockey school and and my friends. So awesome. it wasn't as as big of a shock as it would have been had I gone somewhere without hockey in my life. Right. A reasonable cost of living. Forget what that's like right now. Uh, <laughs> so tell me what uh, in, went into the decision of you pivoting as a hockey player and becoming an official. What motivated you to put on the stripes and what did that transition look like for you? So I actually grew up refing a little bit when I was younger. Um, when you live in this really small community, A, there's no options for part-time jobs as a kid and right. B, they, they need officials because there's only a certain number of kids that are that age that can work that hockey. So I started officiating when I was 11 or 12 years old. I convinced my parents to, to drive me to town for a few games a year. And it was an opportunity for me to make some money, an opportunity for me to practice my skating on the ice. Mm-hmm. And then same when I moved away to Weyburn. Um, I did a little officiating here for a few years because playing elite hockey it was one of the only part-time jobs I could hold. And it was an opportunity, again, for me to get on the ice more than just our, our scheduled practices. Right. Um, so I took a hiatus while I went to school down in the States. And then when I came home, I was kind of searching for a way to stay involved in the game. I was, I was a little bit lost without hockey in my life. And I wasn't ready to coach. I was living in Regina at the time and didn't feel a sense of connection to coaching in Regina. Okay. Um, and so just wasn't ready to commit to coaching and, and decided that actually refing fitted my personality better because I, I don't know that I could stand on the bench and stand there for a whole game. I want to be moving. I want to be on the ice. And, and I'm okay with the, the discrepancies of getting yelled at. And I'm okay with that. I've been through it before. Mm-hmm. Um, and I grew up on, on a farm working cattle with family. So I, I was used to getting yelled at, um, <laughs> in ways that you shouldn't get yelled at. Sure. So I kind of knew, I kind of knew I had the backbone to do it. And it, once I started it, it really curbed my competitive edge. Awesome. So just for some perspective for anybody listening, so you would, you would have been done hockey, um, in college and is there no next level after that? Or is that kind of like the end of the line there to be like, okay, unless you're going professional, like there's nothing else you can really do from a hockey playing career? So at that time, which was in 2015, there was, it was in quite beginning stages. It was the CWHL, mm. which has since folded. It was the Canadian Women's Hockey League. And I actually was drafted by the Calgary Inferno at okay. the time. Um, I think I was like, one of the last place drafts, but I still, I still count it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and I ended up, I ended up getting kicked by a cow and having a knee injury. 
um, that I, I couldn't really come back from in the time frame needed to try out for the team that fall. So that was part of the decision to pivot to refing as well. Um, but now there's a lot more options post-university playing. There is the pre, um, Premier Hockey Federation, which is the PHF. Mm-hmm. And then there's the PWHPL or PWHPA, which is the Professional Women's Hockey Players Association. Cool. So there's two different professional women's leagues in North America and plenty of options in Europe as well. Awesome. And you can see the trickle down effect too. Like if you watch the Olympics this year, like it was the the quality of hockey was really, really cool. It's so important. Tell me about getting kicked in the knee by this cow and that impact that, that had on you. So it was actually the summer or the spring between my third and fourth year of university. I was at home for spring break and that's calving season on the farm. And we had a calf that wasn't able to walk very well, but we needed to get it out of the barn. Mm. So my my brother was carrying the calf um, out to the out to the back pen, and it was my job to keep the the mama cow away from him because they are quite protective. So I he had gotten his his boot stuck in the mud and needed to readjust the calf. And in the process of this, the the cow was getting quite upset, and oh. she turned on me and and kicked and just got me right on the outside of the knee and I could feel in my big rubber boots in the mud something off and it didn't really hit until we were finished chores and sat down inside that that it was starting to swell and something was wrong and and given that I was still had one more year of college hockey I didn't properly rehab it I probably didn't give it the time that it needed to recover and after I was done playing it was still giving me a lot of issues that I just needed to address Otherwise, I would probably now not be able to walk and hike and run and do the things that I love doing. Yeah, short-term annoyance for long-term mobility for sure. Um, did that go into that went into your decision of deciding to hang up the skates and and pursue officiating? Yeah. Yeah, it was just I wasn't able to properly train um, that summer going into when I was supposed to try out that fall, yeah. and I didn't feel prepared, and I as a result of not feeling prepared and being frustrated, not being able to train, I, my heart just wasn't in it. And that was a big decision and a big route to go for my heart, not to be completely and fully in it. Gotcha. Yeah. Makes sense. So tell me about that transition. So you talked about how you've done some repping before. You're like, I want to, I want to be out on the ice. I want to be a part of the action. So you've hung up your skates here, but you're putting on a different pair of skates in order to be officiating what did those first couple of steps to take this quit pretty seriously look like? Honestly, it's hard to think back and remember because it, it felt like such a smooth transition. Mm. I I got welcomed into Hockey Regina with open arms. I had made a couple connections actually prior to even deciding to officiate and they knew I came with playing experience at a high level. Um, and they kind of welcomed me in with open arms, knowing that I would be able to skate the pace of the game, um, that I knew the game of hockey. And from there, they just spend a lot of time evaluating us at that level to determine whether we're capable of of working higher levels. So it was a really positive experience for me. It felt like a really smooth transition and it it just really curbed my my desire to feel like a part of a team be on the ice and and be competitive in a different way. Awesome. So for anyone unaware, explain the role of a hockey official and also the difference between a referee and a lines person. So the referees are the ones that wear the red stripes 
Um, and the primary difference that that is visibly noticeable from the audience is the referees call the penalties and the goals. Um, that's really the biggest difference. And then the lines persons just have the black and white striped jerseys on with with no red stripes. And our role, which I'm primarily a lines person, our role is icings, offsides. Um, we break up fights or scrums when they happen. And then as a team collectively, everybody on the ice is just responsible for game management. So you're talking about breaking up fights and you you ref high a high level of men's hockey. What is that like for you to jump in and break up some scrums? It's exhilarating. <laughs> <laughs> I bet it is, hey? Um, it's one of my favorite parts. A game that has no intensity or scrums, it kind of gets a little bit dull for us on the lines. Right. <laughs> But but it can be tricky too. There's there's different processes that we are supposed to follow in terms of never going into a fight alone because you don't know what's going to happen. Um, I have been punched in the face a few times yeah. unintentionally, of course, right. but I've I've caught caught punches and you just never know what's going to happen. So it's it's a bit of analysis going into a fight, but also a little bit of excitement as well. So was the goal for refing always to be to take this professionally you, you said that the transition was nice and smooth was this something that you're like okay I'm going to do this kind of on the side again or did you leave hockey thinking I am now going to take on a high level of refing and eventually hopefully make my way professionally into it not at all that was never even on my radar um to be honest I, I didn't, and I don't think many people ever think of refereeing as a professional avenue. Um, nobody really views opportunity in officiating. And I, I for sure didn't, especially when I started out. But as I got a little bit of a taste for the competitive side for it, I definitely knew that it was um, something I wanted to work my way up. I still, up until recently, never dreamt of a professional side of it. Um, this year has brought a lot of excitement <laughs> and opportunity as well. So I'm, I'm still trying to figure out what my goals officiating are because I, I do work full time on top of it. So, so trying to balance all of that and figure out where that, that edge is, is, is difficult. Totally. I can't wait to get into some of these awesome things that have happened to you this past year. But before we do, let's talk about, like we talk about hockey and how it's male dominated in terms of who participates in it. But I think refereeing is and officiating is as well. So do you have any stories where it became very clear to you just how male dominated the industry is? I don't know if there's any specific stories. Like I grew up being exposed to primarily male dominated in industries, mm -hmm. playing hockey with the boys um, in an agriculture industry, which is also primarily male dominated. Um, and then when I started refing, I'm I'm mostly on the ice with male crews. So I, I don't know if there was ever like a specific moment that I realized there were specific things that were said that emphasized. Um, I've been told to go back to women's hockey where I belong and, and moments like that where it really emphasizes how unwelcome I still was at that point, yeah. but not necessarily moments because it was such a gradual exposure over my lifetime to the male dominated side of hockey yeah for sure the non-inclusive language would be like super prevalent there for sure so officials you're kind of talking about it like 
they're the first people that are criticized by players and fans, whether it's a penalty or a disallowed goal. It's the first thing that you probably hear is when you make a call or something that doesn't really an offside call that people aren't agreeing with. What kind of language do you hear on the ice? And you talked about how you like you have a thick skin. You grew up forming that thick skin, but what impact does that have on you? There's things that I've heard that I would never have fathomed hearing come out of people's mouths um, while I'm on the ice. And it's, I think lots of times I just, after those games, I leave the rink disappointed in humanity. Um, but it does, like, I'm pretty good most of the time, but there's days when I come home and I just sit and stew on it and it eats away at you at A, how people can be, how, how rude they are. And also like what, reassessing my performance and and kind of questioning myself throughout what caused things to escalate to the point that they escalated to. So there is a lot of reflection as a piece of it. And ultimately, myself as an official, I always want to get the right call. And when I don't get the right call, it it bothers me. When I don't get the right call to the point that people are so upset that they are profane or need to need to exit the arena or whatever the case is, then it eats at me even more because I, I obviously did something wrong mm-hmm. or something of the case. Cause I just can't believe that people are that terrible people that they would yell if something wasn't completely wrong. For sure. What's that like when, especially when you get into the higher levels and you have access to replays and things like that, you make a call, you're getting screamed at, you kind of look up, at the replay and you're like, Oh, I kind of did miss that call. What well, like, give me a glimpse of what that looks like or what that feels like. So the key is never to look at the replay. Okay. Sure. <laughs> um, unless you have an ability to review this, review the play, unless it's a reviewable call at those high levels. Um, the key is just not to look at the replay and, and we're not really supposed to for the sake of putting ourselves in that situation right. as well. Awesome. So we, the best we can do is is what we did on the ice at the time. And that's why a lot of the professional leagues are moving to video review mm-hmm. for certain situations where we can take back a call because ultimately we just want the right call on the ice. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. So what when people are screaming these horrible things at you, are they are they attacking you as a, as a woman? Are they attacking you as a ref? What's give us a glimpse into kind of the language. If somebody's trying to attack you for a call that you've made, what kind of things are they saying? All of the above. It depends on the person, to be honest. Um, certain levels you see, see different trends. Um, I would say that some of the, the men's junior leagues are a little bit more as a woman, um, especially those junior B junior C leagues, but for the most part, anything higher than those levels is quite respectable. And they're usually just upset about the call and my refing abilities. Yeah. So that then on in those leagues, it's more geared at making the wrong call and not being in the right spot or just being terrible in general, rather than at least attacking me as who I am. Right. So let's talk about what's your first big break felt like for you as an official? When did you feel like I'm starting to make some professional moves here? This is something that I'm, I'm making some headway in. What, what felt like your first big break? So my first big break or what I would call my aha moment um, came in December of 2017. 
So I got a call about a week ahead of, I think it was game five of the Canada versus USA pre-Olympic series. Um, so I got a call a week ahead, about a week ahead of the game five that was set to happen in Edmonton and was selected to lines that game. So I flew out lines that game. It was a sold, pretty much a sold out arena, like 34,000 people in the stands. It was my first um, Canada USA women's national team game and really, truly my first exposure to international hockey. So it was crazy overwhelming, but I, I left that game feeling like I had an opportunity ahead of me. And that was when I really set my, my dream and my sights on Beijing. Awesome. So, and if anybody isn't familiar, I would say Canada versus U.S. women's hockey is probably the most intense rivalry in sports. It is like you were really taking a step up into some an intense environment. What was that like for you? It was overwhelming on so many levels. Um, just only having a week preparation for starters to learn international rules because it's a completely different rule book mm -hmm. that we operate out of. That was it was stressful leading up to, um, and then knowing going in that I was in a sold out arena which is not a small arena <laughs> like I'm if I was in a sold out arena here it wouldn't be as as big of a deal but 30 plus thousand fans um and then two teams that had all of the Olympic players that were going to Pyeongchang like I was on the ice with Olympians yeah. and I had a officiating crew with me that was made up of some Olympians as well so it was just a roller coaster of emotions from stress to overwhelm to appreciation to the feeling of opportunity and gratefulness and but I would say that that was probably my my favorite moment of officiating um up until probably this last year awesome so composure is a quality that you hear in professional athletes and they aim to perfect it especially in big games like this, but I imagine there is a lot of composure that you have to rein in as well, especially in times like this where you're overwhelmed and like this is such a big opportunity for you. And you mentioned that you're constantly being evaluated as a coach or as an official as well. How do you, how do you maintain your composure, especially in that moment when this feels like this is so cool, but there's a lot going on here? How did you maintain that composure? So I use a lot of breathing techniques just to bring my heart rate down because once my heart rate's down, I feel like I can I can settle in. Um, so breathing techniques are huge for me. I use them before games. I use them on the ice. Um, I use them at breaks between periods just to help regain my composure. Um, but then I've also learned to to block out a lot of that noise as well. So it doesn't get me emotionally overcharged in games. So sometimes I don't hear a lot of the yelling that goes on because I learn to tune it out simply for the sake of being able to regulate myself on the ice. So I would say that those are the two of my biggest ones. They kind of came gradually learning them through playing as well yeah. but I've really had to hone in on them as an official because there there is a lot more pressure that I wasn't used to as, as a player awesome so in this game specifically when was this sort of a situation where as soon as the puck dropped you were like all business like you clicked in I've done this hundreds of times did it kind of feel like that yeah it was an adjustment because of the speed of hockey I'd never worked a game that was that speed or that that was that style the Canada-USA games are a very different style of hockey than the SJHL men's games that I'd worked. 
Um, so maybe similar in speed, but very, very different style. So there was constant adjustments throughout the game. But I also always tell me, tell myself during games, it's the same game of hockey that we play every day. So maybe a little bit different, but the the rules and everything procedurally is similar enough that I can just kind of lean on my my habits and knowing it and then make those small adjustments as needed. So you clearly did well because from there you started doing some really cool things and were assigned some big events like the Women's World Championships and the Four Nations Cup. What did it feel like to be taking these big steps? It felt, um, it, they weren't huge steps at the time because they were steps that I kind of knew were there and needed to be made, if that makes sense. Um, I'm also not the kind of person who gets extremely excited over over things as much as I am irrational. If I need to get to point B, I need to meet these points in between. And that was a point. And so it didn't feel like a huge step. It felt like a necessary step or necessary assignment. Um, that being said, every event that I got assigned to, it it was just a reaffirmation that I was on the right track and I was doing the right things and and filling in the right bubbles that I needed to along my journey um, of officiating. So I get more excited about the post-tournament reviews <laughs> than I do about the assignment of the tournament. Because sure. the assignment of the tournament just gives me the opportunity to prove myself. The post, post-exit post interviews, that gives me the actual feedback of how I performed at the tournaments. And, and that gives me the idea of where I think I'll land next. So I would say that that post-exit interview gives me the excitement leading into what I think that next assignment is going to be. And then I, I lean into expecting it so that I don't get too excited when I do get it. Awesome. Were you that type of kid that were excited to take home the report card to see what feedback you had? Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. More more concerned about the notes and, and the, the grade than about anything else, probably. For sure. So there's definitely a pressure that would come with that, right? Especially as you're, you have your goals set on officiating more games like this. So what kind of pressures from an officiating standpoint do you take on, not just on the ice, but off the ice as well to make sure that when that report card does come back, you're taking in that feedback, um, but not taking that too personally? I like to compare it to players just because I think the general public relates to players really well and the path that players follow. And I would say it's really similar to the stresses that that players have from the sake of we as officials at these events are also competing for a spot on the team. Um, and when you go to an event, you are a teammate with all the other officials there, but you're also competing against them. So there's that whole aspect of stress and managing competition um, in a healthy environment. But then there's also in the off tournament time, all the preparation that goes into it to make sure that when you get to that event, you can put your best foot forward. You can check all the boxes that you need. Um, And then just having a really healthy support system in place for me so that when we get that quote unquote report card, um, I'm able to process it and and have people to lean on if I, I'm not comfortable with the feedback that I'm getting. For sure. Do you have a story that shows like where you made a mistake and, and how you learned from it? Oh, I've made lots of mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> I would say that I've learned from all of them. 
That doesn't mean that I never make the same mistake again, just because we're in different environments and it's such a, such a fast pace of play and such a fast pace that we have to make decisions in, in the game that sometimes I, I blow my whistle and immediately I'm cursing at myself under my breath because I know before the noise even comes out of my whistle that I've made the wrong call, but I can't stop that motion. So the, the biggest ones I've probably learned from are the ones that I've done on TV because I can go back and watch step by step by step how it progressed and just being able to take the time to reflect and watch it and try and learn the full behavior up to up to even like 30 seconds before what I was doing that distracted me that caused the error to be made or if it's a rule error those are those are really easy ones to fix is there like a call that stands out to you that one that you're always like oh I blew that call at that time there's a there's a couple um I would say hybrid icings which I won't try and explain on here but those are the the hardest to call um, and the ones that you just kick yourself the most for because those are the ones where the the error is going into your whistle and you're trying to suck it back because you know not to blow your whistle, but it's already happening and you can't stop it. Right. So those are the biggest ones. There's so many, though, that, that that's happened a couple times on television that I really really would take back if I could. For sure. And I think that happens with everybody, right? And so especially as like the moment gets more elevated, you you, you get hypercritical of your performance at that time. So let's talk about making history. So we talked about how this is a male-dominated industry. Um, but in September 2021, you made history. Tell me about becoming the WHL's first female official and what that was like for you. Again, extremely incredible, but extremely overwhelming um, from the perspective of of being the first in anything brings with it a lot of pressure um, and also a lot of media attention, right. which which was incredible. Um, but it was just a whirlwind. September was a complete whirlwind for me. I had a few weeks where I, I worked one game and it was interview after interview after interview and and the whirlwind that came along with that was not something that I was prepared for um, and that I had a really hard time balancing on top of all of my other responsibilities. But in terms of actually like making history as the first female alliance person in, in the WHL, it was incredible. They opened me with completely welcome arms and I was treated so well throughout the season they they were very deliberate with making sure I felt welcomed and being inclusive of what I needed as a female official, that it was an incredible experience from an on-ice perspective. Awesome. I love to hear that. So prior to that, was that something that was like well-known that there has never been a female official or alliance person? And was that like a goal of yours or was that something that it it was announced and you got the call and you're like, Oh, I had no idea I was going to be the first one. So I wouldn't say that it's well known from the general public's perspective, but I would, I think most females that are in the officiating industry knew it. Mm. Um, and it was on my radar for a few years prior to that. And I kind of tell everybody, I didn't necessarily care if I was the first one or not, Um, And I would have been very happy if I wasn't the first because it would have meant that there was somebody else before me, but I, it was on my list or my, one of my goals 
to be a female official in the WHL. And being the first was just just a, an icing on the cake that I got to be a person to break a barrier. Awesome. What did that call feel like? Or were you, were you welcomed into an office to be told that? What did Take me to that moment when you found out and what that felt like. <laughs> so I don't know if there were, again, it uh, seems to be the common theme. I don't know if there was a moment. <laughs> sure. um, it's all kind of a gradual process. I had I had reached out and, and spoken with them, with the WHL, in this, throughout the summer and just kind of had asked, like, I want to get there. What do I need to do to get there? Kind of thing. And from there, we had an in-person meeting I'd met. And we had an in-person meeting about my progress and where I felt I was as an official. And it's very reflection-based. Like, they want to know where you feel you are at and where you feel your weaknesses are and all of that. Um, And then that was at the end of July. In August, I was at the Women's World Championship in Calgary. And they had the opportunity to, to see my performance on the ice. And it was kind of after that that they said that they would give me an opportunity as an official. Um, and so similar to players at the beginning of the season, it's a tryout. So you're not guaranteed to be hired as an official for the season. You're you're trying out. And so the first few games were essentially tryout games for me. Um, and then it was, it was they we do a, a big teams call and they kind of walk through who the officials are for the year and welcome on new staff. And that's kind of how I'd found out. But, but for me again, similar, it was, I just had that expectation of myself. Um, and when I got there, it's that excitement inside, but I would have been more disappointed had I not gotten it because I had that expectation of myself. Awesome. So you mentioned that it, it made some waves and you were doing interviews. What was that whirlwind like for for you? Did you feel prepared for it? I did not feel prepared for it. <laughs> um, to be honest, if I if I were to go through something like that again, I think I would maybe do a better job of setting boundaries. Okay. Um, just to balance my own time. It was hard because I wanted I wanted to do every single interview. I wanted people to know because I wanted there to be awareness around the topic more so than it'd be about me. I wanted the awareness around the topic of giving women opportunity. And so that was my my internal obligation to do all of the interviews. But it got it got very repetitive from that standpoint and and I got a little bit burnt out of doing interviews on top of trying to balance my full-time job, officiating, a toddler, a husband, a farm, all of the things. So so I would maybe just do a better job if I were to do it again of setting boundaries um, and or expectations. And on top of that, from getting interview requests and media requests, I'm sure you were getting reached out to by lots of different people congratulating you, other people sharing their stories. Is that something that you experienced as well? Yeah. So the day of my first um, WHL game, they did a press release earlier that game, earlier that day. And I had been very quiet. I knew that it was coming. Um, and I knew that I was going to be on the ice and I told my very close family and friends, but beyond that, they wanted, the WHL wanted to be able to announce it. So it wasn't until the press release came out the day of my game. And as soon as I seen the press release, I, I pretty much set my phone down and didn't look at it for the day because it was text, text, message, message. I, my phone was blowing up and and it was an important day for me. I needed to be able to focus on the game that I had that evening and be able to go into it 
feeling mentally prepared. So I actually kind of just put my phone away and then the next day um, was able to respond and, and thank everybody and, and go through that. But, but yeah, it was the media attention was huge. The people congratulating me and supporting me was huge. And, and the, I would say there was support from friends or people who'd been in similar situations in the past when it came to the social media trolls, but but that that was probably that about it because there wasn't a lot of women who had been in similar situations. Was that hard for you not to look at the social media posts because you have some ignorant people on there that no matter what any brand posts or anything that are that will jump on and attack and be like what what's the big deal or you have people saying things that are just so ignorant. Was that hard for you not to look at that? Um, it it wasn't. It wasn't. I. I did look a little bit just from a perspective of I had lots of friends that were commenting and tagging me. And so then it would it would pull up and I would see something. But it didn't bother me because I mostly feel bad for those people that are trolling. But I had a few friends that were bless their souls. They were reporting all the people's comments and reporting them and 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 they would get deleted and taken down. So they were, I think they were pretty worked up over it and had my back. So that was nice. Oh, good. Why do you think that there, it feels like this is a milestone, an important milestone, but it's, it's kind of shocking so far, especially with how deep rooted hockey is in the province. Why do you think there hasn't been a female official in the WHL before? When I started officiating in 2015, back in Saskatchewan, after graduating university, there wasn't even a lot of female officials. And at that time, we were just getting opportunities at the junior levels as official as female officials. So I think just the whole chain of opportunity, I mean, you have to have first females who are interested in officiating. Mm-hmm. Um, the majority of females who are interested in officiating come from a history of playing. So if you look timeline-wise backwards at when females started playing hockey or when more females started playing hockey, that timeline kind of matches up to now why there's more and more women becoming officials and getting opportunity at higher levels. So to me, the timeline does make sense a little bit, but I'm also a firm believer in in you want to be able to see opportunity right. and, and being able to see opportunity breeds the the feeling of being able to then work towards it so not having seen females in even the lower levels never gave us maybe that feeling that we could even get to the western league hockey league right if if no female was at the the sax junior hockey league level then that was the next stepping stone yeah representation is is just so important because that sparks that that thought maybe I can do that someday. That's kind of fun. And, and that's possible now if you're a little girl and you're watching the Olympics and they see you and they're like, that's something that I want to do. That's, that could be my Olympic dream. That's awesome and powerful. And you saw that with, I think Sarah Thomas with the NFL, when she was breaking so many different barriers across all sports in terms of showing the possibility that can come with being a female in sports and officiating it's just so cool to see representation and to be able to see those opportunities. And like you said, it just sparks that interest in, in other females to say, that's something that I can see myself doing. Yeah. And I think seeing it in other sports has inspired females in the officiating side or the, the women's hockey officiating side, just from a perspective of officiating ice hockey is a lot different than officiating a lot of other sports because there's a lot more 
physicality that goes into it. So it took a lot to get women to the level physically that they needed to be at to officiate at high level men's hockey. So being able to see opportunity in maybe football with a female official in a football game, bred that opportunity mindset to be able to achieve it in the hockey world, which just then took a little bit longer because of the physical aspect that comes with it. Awesome. So let's move into talking about the Olympics. When did you start like setting your eye on a goal of making it to the Olympics as official? So I would say definitely after my my game in Edmonton in the in the December of 2017, after officiating that game with that exposure and that fan base and feeling the feeling of being on the ice in a USA versus Canada rivalry game, that was when I both gained the confidence in myself to be able to officiate at that level, but also then realized that that was something I wanted to do. So from there, I, I set my sights on Beijing. Awesome. And that was the goal of yours or was it um, one of, of many or what I'm trying to show where the priority was in terms of like, like if this was your vision board, what is at the top of it? So Beijing was definitely at the top of it. Awesome. Yeah. So tell me about, again, this might be a thing where you were told in secret or you got the news, but tell me about receiving that news that you were heading to Beijing to officiate the 2022 Olympic Games. So it's kind of a two-step process. Um, they What they do with officials is they create a long list. And there's more officials on the long list than are going to actually be selected to go to the Olympics. But what they do is they bring all of the officials who are on the long list to a training camp. So back in November of 2021, uh, I went to a training camp in Denmark with all of the other officials on the long list. So that was like the moment where I knew I was at least in the running, which was exciting and exhilarating and and gave me that like re-inspiration of grinding down and working to to go to training camp and prove myself. Um, so from training camp, we we had a three day kind of intensive off ice, um, off ice testing, off ice rules testing. And then we dispersed into three separate tournaments to ref those tournaments with Game, game coaches or evaluators or supervisors. Um, and then we came home and then we were told within two weeks we would know. So within, within two weeks, we, we got the call, but that whole day of getting the calls was, was an emotional roller coaster because you don't know when you're going to get the call, but we kind of all have a pact that we'll, we'll text. Once the first person gets a call, they'll send a group text at least to the Canadians, our Canadian group group chat. They said, calls are going out today, be by your phones. And I waited by my phone for hours and no phone call. And so for me, my rationale was the, the girl who had sent a group text in my mind was a shoe in She was for sure going. And so she got the first call. And then you're running through the the options of why haven't I received a phone call yet? And you're granting the grace that they have a lot of people to call and but then you're going through well they must be calling people that are going first and I haven't got a call so I must not be going and and finally I realized that they had an issue connecting with me and I had an email that I was missing because I was so focused trying to wait for a phone call so I ended up I ended up connecting with them and 
and they told me I was I was selected to go and it was more at that point it was more of a relief than anything because I'd worked myself up so much throughout the course of the morning but but I don't know there was there was side group chats going that they were like have you heard from Alex like I can't believe she hasn't heard yet and other people were were worried that I hadn't heard so I was mostly relieved at that point (laughs) oh my gosh no kidding hey when you got that call what what you talked about relief but what else kind of goes through your mind when you get that call for me my processing is I I had relief right away excitement um naturally but then right into planning mode like okay now this now the work begins right now I'm I'm going to the Olympics now how do I make sure that I'm prepared for when I go um and so that's just my natural instinct is to is to not get too excited about things and go right into how I can prepare for for that actual opportunity itself. And do they specialize you knowing that the the men's and the women's games are are very different in terms of rules? Like, do they say like, okay, and you are going to go and you're going to be part of the men's hockey or is, or do you have to be more of a generalist there? So the, the women officiate the, the women's hockey and the men officiate the men's hockey at the Olympic level. Um, and then they specialize us from referee to lines, but really not beyond that. Um, But we're trying out already specialized as a referee or a lines essentially. So we know that going in, what role we're going to be playing. Awesome. During that um, training camp, what was going through your mind? Like, were you feeling just immense pressure? Did you have to like study big time before going into that tryout? What was going through your mind? What was the intense pressure like? So... (laughs) I actually explained it to people when I came home that that I, I think they were evaluating our personality and our ability to perform under pressure and our ability to work as a team more than they were actually evaluating our physical abilities um, because at that point they wouldn't have us at the camp if they didn't think we were physically capable of officiating that level right. and if they didn't think that we knew the rules to be able to officiate at that level. But bringing in the right people to fit on a team, um, I think was a really important piece of the culture that they're trying to build. And so coming out of that camp, I didn't feel that pressure I would have expected to have felt. There was definitely pressure I put on myself and the pressure to perform, um, especially in things like the fitness testing and and the rule testing. But outside of that, it mostly just felt like a test on, are you a good fit for this team? Interesting. So you get the call, you are, it's the time leading up to going to, to Beijing. What were you feeling like heading there and how did you prepare? I refed as much hockey as I could. Um, and I tried to ref more of the high levels that I could. Um, a lot of off ice performance, um, a lot of workouts and fitness and things like that. A lot of studying the rules. I have never studied the rule book as much as I have in the past um, 10 months, but those were the biggest things. Um, COVID, a part of it, all of the different rules and preparations to get, be able to get into China um, was a big piece of it. And a lot of testing and a lot of precautions and a lot of planning and thinking of what's going to go into packing based on the environment we were going into. Um, that was a big piece of it. And and honestly, they actually tried to get us to do a lot of mental preparation as well. B- 
because of the isolated atmosphere that it was versus a regular Olympic experience. So tell me a little bit about the COVID preparation, because leading up to the Olympics, you saw a lot about athletes who were leaving their families two weeks in advance of heading out just because your, your kid could get COVID from daycare. And this is when like Omicron was really spiking up again. So what did you have to do to prepare from a COVID side, even just to get to the Olympics? So similar to, to athletes, uh, the two week isolation ahead of the event, um, I was, I didn't have to isolate from my family. We were given the option as game officials because we had to do such rigorous testing anyways. Um, I did keep my daughter home from daycare. So it was a whirlwind of trying to work from home with a toddler, um, at home with me and balance the preparations of getting ready to go on top of that. Um, my husband was able to go to work cause he only works with a few other people and the testing I, I live in Weyburn. So I drove to Regina three times in two weeks or in the last 10 days for tests. And I actually had to drive to Winnipeg for a test because Saskatchewan didn't put forth um, a lab that was approved by the Chinese embassy. So the closest center was Calgary or Winnipeg. So I actually, in the last 10 days, I drove to Regina three times and Winnipeg once for COVID tests. So that was a, a time burden um, on its own, just the, the actual physical COVID testing preparations. No kidding. And in any other year, that would not be a thing that anyone would have to deal with. But that is a lot of traveling just to say, I'm healthy. I, I can get on this ice. Oh, so what kind of mental preparation did they get you to do in order to think about the, the isolation as well as like on site, there's very little fans in the in the arena outside of other Olympic Olympians that can cheer on their teams? So they, they gave us some resources, um, but mostly they left it up because everybody prepares mentally differently. But they gave us the heads up that this is going to be an event that, that you need mental preparation for. Any event you need mental preparation, but this one more than any, um, you, need, you need to be right up here. So they mostly just gave us that heads up plenty of time in advance to be able to figure out how we need to prepare ourselves. Um, but then also through, throughout the last two weeks, as regulations were changing daily and tests were being added, and I would say that that's probably the most stress out of the entire process for me was the last two weeks. We were having Zoom calls every other day with changing rules and regulations and testings and approvals and everything like that. And just how good the IHF was of communicating to us that if this was too much, we could still back out. Yeah. There was no, there was never the feeling of pressure that they expected us to be there, regardless of what mental strain it put on us. And they were very understanding of if you can't do this, that's not going to be held against you for future assignments. This is an anomaly of an event and it is high pressure and we understand that. So just the acknowledgement of that alone took a lot of that pressure off. Awesome. This is this was such unique games where leading up to it, there were so many different concerns with that, even political concerns. Um, there was even questions about whether the games would even happen. What kind of relief did you feel when you got to just board the plane after crossing so many different finish lines in order to make sure that you'd be able to go? 
the relief came when I actually got into my hotel room and cleared the first two COVID tests mm -hmm. in Beijing. Because with all the rules and testing, getting on the plane wasn't a guarantee that they would allow you into China. Um, the, the process to get into China was extremely rigid. They took COVID very, very seriously, which worked really well for the games, um, but added stress. So the relief came when I got to the hotel. And then once we got in our into our hotels, we had a two-day quarantine where you had to test negative twice. So the relief came when I got the two negative tests and was allowed finally at that point to leave my hotel room. Oh, so what did that feel like? That was like, aha, like finally I'm, I'm here. I can do the job that I came to do. That was the moment of like, now I can just enjoy officiating because I love it. That was the moment where I could enjoy my teammates. I could enjoy being on the ice. I could enjoy just in general, not having the stress looming over my head of all the testing and preparing that needs to go into it. It was then about the performance. Oh, something you would never have to, that stress you would never have to worry about in any other games. So what was your Olympic moment like? What was it like to step on that Olympic ice for the first time and the puck drops? What's going through your head? I think that the way to describe it is pretty much how you would see it in a movie. Um, it's similar to athletes, right? We, we worked really hard to get there. And it's that moment of like, oh my goodness, just trying to take it all in, of, of stepping onto the ice. The referees come on the ice before the players do. So we always do a, like a, a hot lap, we call it. And that, that first lap of like really being able to take it in that you're there and then, and then once the puck drops, then it's your game face is on. But it's that coming out, out the Zamboni doors, stepping onto the ice and doing that first lap around where you can really be like, I, I made it. I'm at the Olympics. This is incredible. It's a great reminder of the Olympics because when you think about the Olympics, you think of like the athletes. But whether you're in the crowd, you're a referee, you're a player, everybody there is experiencing such a moment of accomplishment, which is so cool try to like when you're doing your hot lap like do you remember what you were reflecting on like the kind of energy you were feeling so I was trying to be very deliberate of just taking it in and not trying to be any place else not trying to focus on the game ahead just for that for just for that hot lap um and so for me it was just like seeing the olympic signage around the arena and like as weird as it sounds like I can feel like breathing the air in the arena that was at the Olympics, like being able to just be fully present so that when I reflect back, I can remember what that feeling felt like. Awesome. What will you remember most about your experience with the Olympics? Unfortunately, how stressful it was. Um, it was a complete anomaly and I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I had a great Olympic experience because of how stressful it was and how isolated it was. Um, we really truly didn't get the opportunity to be a group um, for the majority of the event because we had to stay in small, we called them pods. So for the whole um, round robin games, I could only officiate games with the same select group of officials and so I could only eat meals with those same select group of officials I couldn't ride the elevator 
with anybody outside of those same officials. So I got to know those other officials really, really well, but we also became very sick of each other. Right. So I think I'll just mostly remember how different of an event it was and how incredible it felt to kind of overcome that other side of adversity. And to me now, anything that I work that doesn't have that side of the stress just seems so much more enjoyable because I just get to enjoy officiating and not have to deal with all of that other extra that I now am aware could potentially exist. Yeah, you don't get to experience like the Olympic Village, the way it's supposed to be, all that sort of stuff. So hopefully you get another chance and uh, you get a, a better experience from that aspect. What kind of games did you get to officiate? Did you get to do any Canada versus US or anything like that? So I got to work one Canada game. Um, I worked Canada versus Switzerland. Beyond that, uh, I didn't work I didn't work the Canada versus USA either of their two games. Um, but I did get to work so I got to work lots of round robin games, a quarterfinal game, and then I got to work the bronze medal game. So from a hockey standpoint, I was extremely happy with my experience and and loved every moment. I was slightly disappointed that I didn't get to work the gold medal game. Um, I think we all have fairly high expectations of ourselves in that that moment of not getting to work the gold and getting to work the bronze in that moment doesn't feel like success. Um, you don't watch Olympic athletes on TV that are happy really with the bronze. You often see them crying when they didn't get gold. So it's just that expectation that you put on yourself as a high performance athlete. Um, but all in all, I loved refing at the Olympics, but outside of refing, we had no Olympic experience. Mm. So it's just another sh- like the consistency between players and officials. That's like your goal is to be in that gold medal game. So is this something that you want to continue for the next four years to get to the next Winter Olympics? It's a really difficult question. <laughs> <laughs> I've been asked it a lot and I've I've kind of given myself a little bit of time to to process and reflect and try and figure out what's next for me just because of the amount of commitment it is puts a lot of pressure on on my career on my family on the other members that are in my office that work with me um, because of the outside commitments that I have I would love to go to Milano in 2026 Um, personally I would absolutely love to I I haven't a hundred percent decided if that's the right right choice for my family yet or not Um, but Right now, I'm still working towards it. I, I haven't stopped working towards that. Right. I'm still putting in the effort. I just I'm a little bit more open to the fact that it it might that goal might change. So let's talk about that commitment. You've been officiating games since 2015. If you've had to estimate how many games you've done since, how many would you estimate? I, I kind of tally them up after an end of every season, and it's anywhere from 80 to 120 games a season. Oh my gosh. So 500 plus games because COVID years in there um, kind of threw everything out of whack. But, but for sure, like I would say for sure, 600 games since 2015. So keeping that in mind, what kind of sacrifices go into being an official at this level? Uh, I have no social life. (laughs) My social life, my social life is hockey, um, which I'm, I'm okay with. But on the other side of things, my, my husband sacrifices, I would say a lot more than I do because we have a, a daughter who's young and needs one of us at home. Um, in order for me to be gone as much as I am in winter, he sacrifices a lot of his social life as well. So 
really we sacrifice social life more than anything um and then a lot of outside things that people would do like I use all of my vacation days for hockey um so we don't really take much for family vacations we make the most of the time that we have at home and on weekends and long weekends but just everyday sacrifice more than more than big picture sacrifices every single day I'm gone lots I'm up early in the mornings we're I'm prepping food when I could be spending time with my husband um but just trying to be as deliberate with everything that I do um, rather than distracted with everything. It just allows me to make the most of my time. For sure. Plus time away from your daughter, which like, especially the Olympics, that must've been hard for you. Yeah. Very. (laughs) Um, She, I was gone a lot in the last year. Um, I was in, I was in a bubble in Calgary for a week last May. I was in a bubble in Calgary in August for three weeks away from her. I was in, in, Denmark and then Czech Republic for the pre-Olympics um, for two weeks in November and then gone for three weeks in February. So in the course of less than a year, I was gone for a fifth of her life, which is crazy um, to think back and reflect on. But but yeah, I would say that her and her and my husband miss out on the most of out of anything because I'm I don't feel like I'm sacrificing because I'm chasing something that I love. Okay, let's take a quick time out. As Alex has said, so much sacrifice happens behind the scenes in order to make Olympic dreams a reality. Most of the time, those sacrifices happen very early as parents start saving for their kids as soon as they are born. If you're a parent, I'm sure you've thought about how best to set them up financially so they have access to leap at their dream, whatever it is. I have Brianna Martinson, a financial advisor at our Mydale branch on the line, and she's going to give you some tips on how to do just that. Take it away, Brianna. Hey Mason, a great tool for education savings is the Registered Education Savings Plan. Parents and grandparents can deposit into this account and the government also places grant money in this account to help pay for post-secondary education when that time comes. For extracurricular activities, a great savings tool is a savings account with automatic deposits. You can set these up to happen as often and for a dollar amount you are comfortable with This way, when fees are due, you have funds to put towards them. Thanks, Brianna. It's never too early to start saving and make that money work for you. We're in the home stretch of our interview with Alex, though, so let's whistle play back in. So you talked about just being intentional with time and scheduling. So how do you balance officiating with being a wife, a mom, working full time as a relationship manager? And I hear you also teach fitness classes. How are you? How do you balance that? I wouldn't say that I balance it gracefully by any means, um, but I've really leaned into embracing the chaos um, that my life is and then just making the most of the time that I do have. So a lot of things go in like meal prep and being trying to be present with my daughter when I am at home so that those moments mean more. Um, I, I use my lunch break almost every single day to get in a workout Um, so I fit in a lot of my workouts during my workday and just do them on my noon hour so that it doesn't take as much time away from my family. But again, like that comes back to, I think I grew up on a farm with four kids and my parents were full-time farming and we were running all the directions every single day and we just made it work. So I kind of grew up with that ingrained in me, the, the work hard and figure out how to be efficient in as many ways as you can and you'll be able to accomplish a lot of things. So awesome. So 
tying this all together. So we're making a lot of strides in equality in sports, especially in officiating, thanks to you. Um, but there's a lot, there's a long ways to go. So what do you think will take it to the next level? I think that this year has been incredible for females getting opportunity in male hockey. And I think that this year is going to project women forward exponentially just because and to me it kind of all started at the st- at the start of last hockey season in September till today and continuing forward there's not very many days where I don't see another announcement of another woman getting an opportunity so I think just that alone is going to propel women forward um because it's not one woman getting an opportunity and if she fails that reflecting all women. It's now multiple women reflecting our abilities to perform and be a part of that level of hockey. So I think just we've made incredible strides this year, continuing down that path and having uh, continued advocacy from the women that are having those opportunities. Couldn't agree more. And I think whenever there's a pioneer that that shows that it's possible then you have those trolls that are saying, no, this is tokenism. This is just a phase. This is just a fad of a social movement. But I couldn't agree more that when you have advocates from people talking about their experiences, it's just going to show others that it is possible. And that is something that will inspire them to get into the arena as well. So what does being a female referee and a trailblazer and an advocate mean to you? For me, it just means that I get the responsibility and the ability to represent women. But it also means that I get to be a role model for other young girls and young women and a mentor and all of the things that, that if they see that opportunity for me, it just gives me the ability to, to show them that it's possible, but then also to be an accessible resource for them. So I've done that with within my local community and local association that anybody who wants to reach out or wants to talk or discuss their opportunity or or what I've done, I want to be an open book and I want to share that with them. Um, So it's more of a mentorship ability for me now that I've I've had that opportunity. I've reached these these levels that haven't been reached before and I want to be able to give back. So talking about being a role model, you have a daughter, Prairie, love the name, by the way. What kind of example do you hope that this sets for her? I mostly hope that she just sees me pursuing my dreams and grows up thinking that it doesn't matter who she is or what she does or what her dreams are, that she can pursue them and and feel like she's safe to do so. That's That's my biggest goal is that she feels free to pursue her dreams um, and see ability in in anything in life. Oh, I got chills the moment you said feel safe to do so. Oh, okay. So looking back, what have you learned about yourself during this journey? I've learned that I need to set boundaries. <laughs> and I learned a lot this last year with how chaotic it was about the need to be present um, and not be distracted and how to optimize the time with the people that mean the most to me and not sacrifice that for opportunity, but be able to balance all of it. Ooh, that is a mature take. I think I was, I think I was expecting, 
I'm learned that if I set my my mind to something, I'd be I'm capable. I can do it. But it's what I love about your story is like you clearly are open to feedback, and it, you can tell that you're very you you self reflect a lot. So it you have such a holistic, a really cool holistic take about how you setting your goals and your dreams and accomplishing your dreams, the impact that it has on your family and your communities and different things like that. It's so cool to hear that perspective from you. So last question before we jump into some speed round questions, you've had a year where you've accomplished so many goals. What's next for you? This next season, I want to be able to focus on being my absolute best on the ice in the Western Hockey League. I would love to get some more games in the American Hockey League uh, and perform there. And I would love to get another international tournament for the upcoming season, which we'll find out likely in the fall whether we do. So that's my goal on the ice for this upcoming season. I felt like last year was so mentally draining with everything going on that I wasn't in all moments my best official on the ice. And I really want to take the time this season to be able to show up not mentally drained and and be able to give every game that I I work more of me. Awesome. Outside of hockey, what's next for you? Well, that's a great question. <laughs> um, we would like to have another kid. My husband and I would like to have another kid. Um, that is a huge discussion almost daily in our family just because of the balance of being a woman and what that entails to get pregnant and be pregnant and performance wise. So we don't know and we can't agree on a timeline for that right now, but ideally I'd like to be able to balance it all and, and do all of it, but I don't know whether or not I can. So we're kind of just going through that discussion of how do my hopes and my dreams officiating wise work into our family's goals, also working into my husband's goals um, to be a full-time farmer. So right. we're just trying to navigate that pathway right now, which is why I think I'm open to the fact that my goal to, to work in Milano in 2026 may or may not change. Awesome. So before we let you go, we're going to jump into some speed round questions, an opportunity for us to connect with you in a different way. So first one, outside of hockey, what's your sport? Triathlon. Really? Mm-hmm. So do you follow yeah. it or do you participate? I, I participate. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. I, I also don't watch many sports because, again, I would rather be doing them. Sure. Do you have trouble watching sports? Like when you watch hockey, do you watch hockey from the lens of an official or do you watch hockey as a fan? Well, I don't ever watch as a fan. <laughs> I either watch from the lens of an official or I actually just watch the officials. Sure. <laughs> Go to karaoke song. Mm, Red Dirt Road. Oh, Brooks and Dunn. Yeah. That's a good one. Um, yeah. As an official, you are meant to enforce the rules. What's a rule that you consistently break? I don't know. <laughs> I I can't legally speak to that one. <laughs> <laughs> That's you invoking your, your Fifth Amendment, right? Yeah, yeah. Dri- drive, Driving-based, potentially. Sure, sure. Sounds good. Um <laughs> The last thing your daughter Prairie has taught you? The last thing that she has taught me. um, She daily teaches me patience. But yesterday while we were shopping for a birthday gift, she taught me that she needed Spider-Man. So. (laughs) (laughs) 
Sure. Yeah. And, and she, I learned all about why she needed to take home a Spider-Man toy. But <laughs> I love that. We didn't, we didn't take home a Spider-Man toy. Oh, okay. Good to know. <laughs> um, what's something Weyburn does better than anyone else outside of KFC Buffet? Welsh Kitchen. A hundred percent Welsh Kitchen. <laughs> Welsh Kitchen better sh- share this because the the amount of earned media you're giving them at this time is is awesome. I they are my go to and I will promote them anywhere and everywhere and the soup the sandwiches but it's the dollar dessert yeah it gets me. Are you allowed to wear like patches? You know how jerseys like for sponsors they're allowed to wear patches on their jerseys. Can can refs wear like a Welsh Kitchen <laughs> patch? We got to get that set up for you. Yeah, I, I really should. We can't, but I really should. <laughs> totally. Um, you get one album to take with you on a deserted island. What are you taking? Can it be my personalized album? Like one of those CDs that you burn yourself? <laughs> sure. One that you find on the ground of your Pontiac Grand Dame. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pontiac Grand Prix was mine, but okay, definitely. Sure. I think I had an Alex's mashups of like 2011 or something that would definitely go with me. Sure. Timeless. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, last question for you, Alex. What connects us? What connects us? I think just the chaos of life. We're all living a chaotic life and how we get through it is, to me, what connects us the most. Oh, it's so true. Oh, Alex, thank you so much for taking some time. I was hanging on every word you said because you do such a great job of giving some great insights and lessons through your experience. And something that you said early on in the interview that kind of gets you in the zone and focuses you is that regardless of the level, it's the same game of hockey. And I think what you've shown us is whether that you're a male, a female, a player, an official, we're all enjoying and participating in this game of hockey, regardless of the genderization that happens. And I think you're just doing such a great job of being a trailblazer an ambassador and an advocate and allowing in your words, other little girls to feel free and safe to pursue their dreams. So thank you so much for taking some time today. We took a lot from this. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it. Awesome. Well, that's it for a chat with Alex. And for this season of the What Connects Us podcast, we'll be back in October for a brand new season. But until then, if you like the podcast and you want to support it, please do us a favor, hit that subscriber follow button on whatever platform you're listening to us on, do a review of the podcast and share the podcast with a friend or on social media. Thank you so much for listening. We truly appreciate this. We'll see you in October. Let's connect then.